Hello, I'm Roy Shackles and welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you an industry expert looking for insights? Are you growing your career? Or are you a dear friend helping to spur your old pal on? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to have the most inspiring conversations with creative industry personalities and experts about entrepreneurship, pop culture, art, music, film, and fashion. Here we stand at the beginning of January 2021, a time ripe for putting new bold dreams into action. I'm joined with the erudite and cultured Gary Burt to discuss the future of work, where we will explore the front of mind topics about the workplace of the future, how people will do their work, and the socio-cultural, economic, political, and technological implications. We exist in time where change is constant and there's no going back. But just how radically improved will the world of work be due to what we have just came through and experienced from a global pandemic that is COVID-19? Welcome, Gary Burt. Hi, Roy. Good to uh, good to be back. How has the global pandemic impacted how work is done? What changes has this brought and are these changes sustainable? Wow, a lot of questions there. So I guess, you know, if I start with myself, so for me, there's, there's not been a huge amount of impact. So what's happened is, you know, I used to be able to work remotely and at different, with different jobs over the last few years and different roles, that sort of moved on a continuum between, you know, in the office sometimes, in the office less, traveling more, but there's always been an element of working from home. So what's happened is the slide has just gone right up and it's working from home full time, but it has changed work. I think for me, one of the things was in the early part of COVID, so from the March to July, what happened was most of the people who were working remotely were finding themselves really getting burnt out. They were doing many more hours. They were really committing to the job. They were focusing on really trying to keep things going and it was really hurting. So I think one of the things that I saw as a change over the period was a very definite shift in the, after the summer holidays. So as we went into September, we saw a really big shift because what we saw is we saw almost a, a, a higher level of maturity. And certainly at my, org- my company, my organization, they were, there was a real recognition that we had to learn and evolve from the way we've been doing things. So we started to make some changes, just not just around welfare, but around working practices to, to encourage people to lock time out in their day. So they, they weren't doing these ridiculously long hours, particularly in a global organization, where you're trying to, to meet calls at you know, um, other ends of the world. So we... I, I think in the second half of the year, we really evolved to a, a, a more mature form of working. Now, that suits the company and the business that I'm in, you know, a technology company. But I think for a lot of other businesses, this is really catching them on the hop. So, I mean, to answer your question, I think the changes, a couple of things, I think the changes that we are, we have seen with COVID, they're not going to reverse quickly. Um, the question is, how much are the companies going to fight to pull back versus how are the, how much are the people going to anchor in and want to keep some of what they've got? So I see, I see this as a continuum. So if you think of at one end, we have 
you're in the office nine to five full time, you're in the middle of a city. At the other end, you're full time home. So what we had was we had people at different positions on that continuum. But I think everybody's found that it shifted more to home. Um, I mean, will organizations go back to full-time working, uh, you know, full-time city office block based nine to five working? I, I don't think so. I think many of the changes that we're seeing are, are going to going to remain for some jobs. That's yeah. so it's going to be there for some jobs, but it's not going to be there for all. I mean, you and I are, we're very privileged, you know, we're lucky, work hard and study hard, but we're still very lucky to be in the industry we're in so we can do this. But a lot of people aren't, a lot of industries aren't, and it's those that are really going to feel the impact the most. So, you know, I can keep working during this as, as you know, quite a lot of people can, but that's, that's still a small subset of the total number of the population. So when we look at the changes, it isn't people in my type of work that are going to be, that are going to see massive change. It's, it's just simply, a, it's more of what I was already doing. It's the other organizations that are not able to do this. How are they going to adapt? Are they going to want to go back to having people or will the next few months as we get into a year of COVID, will this really get to a tipping point where the organizations will need to reinvent the way that they work and actually embrace this. So the even, even people who want to work remotely will find that the opportunities have changed. I mean, what's your thoughts, Roy? Having recently came out of the technology industry, companies like Apple, Microsoft, and Google have invested billions in building central campus office environments for employee, for their employees. For example, Microsoft is in the midst of modernizing 2.5 million square feet of new office space that constitutes to over 130 billions within their 500-acre headquarters in Redmond near Seattle, designed to inspire innovation, foster collaboration and improve productivity. However, up, up until I worked within a campus environment, almost every working environment that I operated within was open plan and built for human interaction and collaboration, typically within a flat horizontal structure and layout that was transparent and real and, and visual factory, where these buildings were designed to, to mirror the culture of the company and its people and designed to help cater for their various needs and their diverse interactions amongst themselves. They were more dynamic environments rather than static environments that helped bring people together to collaborate, make decisions and then move on quickly into action and really empowering people to work from wherever they want wanted, whether that was within um, the, the building environment or at home or cafes or whatever made most sense for them to, to do their best work. And so things like working remotely, um, working virtually and embracing the technology that enabled that was just the norm. At a personal level, that way of working really suited my lifestyle and work preferences. I found it very liberating and empowering. And from a teaming perspective, very collaborative and productive. And so what COVID has helped accelerate is the broader application of, of these technologies, but also to 
drive more empowered work-life patterns that suit people's lifestyle choices whilst expose the need to modernise and rethink how work gets done. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the key thing for this that you said before was the word culture. So I just, if I compare, so I I left Microsoft about 10 years ago now. So if I compare two or three different countries, so if I compare the US the majority of the campus, you know, the, so the Redmond campus, the HQ of Microsoft was maybe uh, a collection of 50 buildings, maybe more across a number of sites, close close sites, with people largely in um, dedicated or a couple of sharing an office. But actually, that isn't a model that was ever used in Europe or the UK. So if I look at the UK, when the UK renovated its offices, probably, I don't know, 2008, 2009, and it built the the latest um, building, that was the opposite. It was all built for collaboration. So the the building was essentially open spaces and meeting rooms. There were very few dedicated offices, really few. And the idea of everybody having their own office was just, it was the opposite way. I then look at Europe, and Europe had gone, some of the European buildings had, had absolutely embraced that creative aspect. And again, what they'd done, they'd really gone um, to town in a positive way on building create, you know, intentionally creative spaces. These weren't passively designed. They were really actively designed and involving the people who are going to be working in them to build what went on to become award-winning workplaces. But the workplace, if you look at this, it was all about collaboration. The, you know, there were buildings, there were rooms, but the last time, certainly when I went to the last, um, the Amsterdam office and I visited as a client and a customer several times since, but you had buildings with, you know, without, if, if you think of a traditional meeting space, you've got a, a let's say, you know, six, six room, six people room, you've got a, an, an oblong table and chairs around the outside, a yeah. 10 people room is a bigger, a bigger square. You might get to 20 people and you've got a whopping great bloody big table. Yeah, but it was always the same model. You then look at, you know, flexible spaces and you looked at, um, you know, oh, well, we need to be uh, building next generation office. So you, you built that big square table with smaller tables that you could then move around and reorganize. Or you could put it at the side and just have everybody sitting on chairs in the big circle. But the leading offices, what, what they Microsoft had done in the Netherlands was made these much more like um, social, much more social spaces. So you had sofas in there, you had chairs, you had, it was intended to be a much more relaxed and lounge space. It was close to a country club or, you know, like a big shared dorm apartment, you know, where you could have, you know, 10 people lounging around on big sofas, very, very different environment. So the question is for me, what culture do you want? Because I think you're right. I think, you know, individual offices are great for head down, getting on with it. But is is that what you want to do? And and if you do that, does that push your collaboration to being online? Even though you're physically close, you're pushing your collaboration to be online, which is a really interesting thing. So you're pulling people together into a physical space like the campus, but then you isolate them with the, the offices. Whereas you have the opposite view on the other side of the world, but you're in Europe and the UK and many other countries 
which is people are isolated, but they're collaborating online. But when they do get physically close in the same office, they're not separated. Their, their time is together. It's a real question of culture. Which do you want? Yes, it is. Also, picking up on a few of the key points you made there, Gary, how remote working it actually fuels and accelerates collaboration. And what I found as well is when I was collaborating with people that were remote, when I was working in a campus environment, the relationship, the collaboration, the the innovation um, and transparency was significantly better than working with people in the physical space, which was ironic. But it was proven year in, year out that those were the most productive relationships on multiple levels. The other point you made there around the technology companies where they just got it right, where the regional offices were spectacular benchmarks for how the new world of work should be done. And you give a great example there of Microsoft's office in the Netherlands, in, in, in Amsterdam, which was a, a which was a real signpost for how productivity and collaboration should be should be done and how you know creating the right spaces that stimulated creativity and, and innovation in terms of as you said the design of buildings the air conditioning the space the color the aesthetics all played a critical role combined with how technology is then used in an intelligent way to enable that experience. And I think kind of where we're at now in terms of technology application, you know, we pretty much have everything within our capability to be able to do what we do remotely as opposed to having to go into a physical space and uh, do, do work. So the technological tools, the software, um, and how we're able to equip our home offices, um, in, in many cases, our experience uh, working from home is better than working um, in, a, in an office environment, um, not just aesthetically, but technologically as well. No, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. I, mean, I was thinking about this at a personal level in terms of how my office has evolved. So if I go back, oh, it's probably 20 years, you know, my home office was um, working um, in the dining room, I didn't have a dedicated office then, but it was working largely in the dining room at the, you know, at the end of the table with my laptop and my mouse. If I look at where I am today, now clearly there's there's a the benefit of age and moving to, to do that. But if yeah. this is still even this is going to apply to to young people entering the workplace as well, as they start to think about their work environment. But if I think about this now. It's it's a dedicated office. No, it isn't big. It's it's what was you know in the UK we'd call a box room. It's a small bedroom. It's I don't know, you know, ten by seven something like this. It's a, it's a it's a small bedroom in size of the office. It's just the fact it's got computers in. But if I then look at what's in there, you know, I've got one, two, three, four monitors. I've got a, a separate um, personal um, machine in there, so I keep the world very separate. There's lighting in there so the quality's better there's a there's a hopefully a good quality mic that you're hearing there's a, a professional um quality video camera that if i need to i can stream at 4k i can certainly um do a webcam at you know um hd so you think of this and what we've got is is 
these home offices now, if we look at what they are, this home working isn't you at the end of the table. It's you in a home studio, in a home office, a true home office. Yeah. It's a it's a micro office. And I know you're the same, Roy, <laughs> you know, like you do, you share the photos. But I mean, you've, you've just, you know, set up your organization. So if you talk about what your home office is, it would probably be better um, designed, better referred to as a, as a home studio as much as an office, because it's about creativity. It's a creative and collaborative space. I know it's became a cliche. Nevertheless, we are able to do our work from anywhere, at any time, on any device. Combining that with the advances in home technology, smart homes, like network-connected products to control, automate and optimise functions such as temperature, lighting, security, safety or entertainment, all, all through our phone, for example, or a tablet or a computer or laptop, whatever the system may be. This is really appealing because it's allowing people to control everything through, through one device, whether it's their appliances, thermostats, lights or other devices remotely with our phones or tablets connected to the internet and the convenience and cost avoidance within that is, is becoming substantial. And in many cases, our technology at home has become so much more advanced as well as our workspace at home, it generally trumps what most people, what many people can experience within their within an office environment, and it can affect our productivity. And it should be entirely down to people to choose their work life location and balance patterns that suit their lifestyle and preferences, and feel empowered to do so. Now and kind of going forward, what are going to be the different scenarios that technologies like emerging technologies like um, virtual reality and the immersive experiences technologies, how can they be applied to affect, to help um, stimulate um, and mimic realistic experiences that can be delivered um, artificially through artificial stand-ins to, to, to represent real life stimuli um, within a natural environment and so that we can experience that um, at home versus having to go into an office space. And hey, if I'm, if I'm sounding far too one-sided here and biased about um, working at home, I'm, I absolutely don't mean, um, you know, looking at things around the isolation that that can create and how important physical interaction is. Um, I'm just drawing a parallel here and a distinction around there's just as good, if not better, experiences to be had um, from non-traditional um, office environments. Well, yeah, and I'm old enough to be able to have seen this flip. So when I started in technology 25 or so years ago, the, the most advanced technology was in the corporate space. That was where the servers were, it was where the high-powered machines were. You know, we were seeing the emergence of uh, portable laptops, but they weighed a ton. They were, you know, small screens, not great quality. So it, it, the portable world wasn't possible. It started to come, you know, sort of 20 years ago. But when what, we, what we've seen during that time is a flip. So when I started, you know, I'm just thinking about it, it's probably closer to 30 than 20. But when I started, the corporate space, the business environment was the place where new technology arrived. It was where the innovation happened because that was why it was paid for. That's not the case today. And, and I think there's a really big 
question here for evolving workplaces, and it's this. So what we've seen over the, over the last few years, we've seen this flip between the innovation happen initially in the corporate space, and then it's in the consumer space. So clearly the majority of innovation now happens, certainly in terms of personal productivity in the personal space, and then it goes into the workspace. So what happens when you know, people are being asked to go back into the office and, you know, instead of them getting a dedicated 50 megabits per second or, you know, my, I don't know, a few hundred megabits per second, you know, or if you live in the Netherlands, you're getting over a gigabit you know, in certain cities. You go from that, you go back into the office and, you know, you're getting looked at and no, we don't want you to play music. Okay. We don't want you to play headphones. No, no, you can't listen to the music you want. You can't work in the way that you want. There is a dress code. More importantly, you then expect it to work on your single monitor or your single monitor, you know, your laptop and one monitor rather than the two or three you might have at home, but also when your internet connection is rubbish. So this is the flip. The flip is the office is a lesser environment than your home office because your home office is adapted. The home environment is adapted. You know, if I listen to the adverts, yeah. there's an advert running in the UK for BT, the national telco. And it's going, if you want to work from home, and it's essentially mimicking all the dropouts and the problems with a poor internet connection. And this is absolutely true. The, the advertising is absolutely on the money. You want to work from home, get a decent internet connection. We know that, sort your Wi-Fi out, et cetera. But, you know, once people have done that, are they going to want to, hang on, let's look at what this experience is. You want me to go back into the office. You want me to spend an hour in a traffic jam or more. You yeah. want me to pay a fortune for parking or, or tolls, or I've got to be, I've got to sit near people. So if, if I can't drive, I've got to sit on a train and hopefully we'll get past COVID, but that's, that is not going to be a comfortable experience psychologically for quite a while. I then go into an office where, you know, I can't do what I want. I've got a very strict dress code. The Wi-Fi is rubbish. Yeah. It, it's not going to flip back to that. There's going to be pushback. And I think, and this is, this comes back to your point about um, campuses at the start. These companies have made huge investments in real estate and working spaces. And what we've found is that in many industries, they're simply not needed. They may be a nice addition, but are people want to, going to want to go back? The one thing we know, there's a, there's a, there's a good um, example of trying to reverse a change, and that's Yahoo a few years ago. So Marissa Mayer you know, had the policy of trying to pull people back into the office, trying to dissuade remote working. Now, it wasn't the cause of this, but that was absolutely correlated with a lot of internal problems at Yahoo. Now, their problems were much deeper. They started before that time, but there was a huge amount of pushback on trying to pull people, once they'd worked remotely, back to that central point. And what we know is that people will put their work priority they will put their personal lives above their work. So they'll do what they need to do to keep the money rolling in, but that's not going to buy loyalty, you know? And what it does is, is it, you, you start to ask people to do something they're not comfortable with. All they do is they start a timer on them leaving. And that's what happened. You, you have a big talent loss. So as soon as you're not putting your people first, which is certainly going to be the case if, you're, if you start to force people to come back, you're going to, you're going to have those problems. If a lot of people are going to go, no, my life, my new life is is a better fit for me. 
And if you're not able to accommodate that, then I'm going to work elsewhere for those people that can. Now, I think that now that's that's one change. The bigger question, though, is for me is the other 80 percent. What's going to happen to those that are not in the tech industry, not in the you yeah. know, IT services industry, not in marketing, not in you know, even call centers, but not in roles where they either have the ability to do that or it doesn't fit with the work. The question of evolution is how are those organizations going to evolve? Because even if, even if the organization wants to go back to what it was pre-COVID, does the customer base is the people who are interacting with you, who, if your company's still going, you're largely working remotely, certainly in a lot of Europe. So is your customer base going to want to go back to what it was? I think that the questions are, we. a lot of the questions are being looked at from a technology perspective, but they go much, much deeper. And I think if you want to start, you start to look at those organizations that are not technology centric, but have become much more technology centric and technology savvy. They've had to work around. Are they going to revert to what they did before? Are they going to continue this evolution? And if they do, which I think they will, that's where the biggest changes are going to happen. Yeah. I, I think the other thing, and you made this point strongly, but just to, to, to underpin it, is I think what this pandemic has also bolstered is that it's further enforced that people are really now in a position to choose their work-life location and balance patterns that suit their lifestyle and preferences and feel empowered to do so. There's no excuse now that employers can, can come out and say, oh, but you can't, you, you really have to be in the office to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Well, wrong. It's been proven that you absolutely don't. The, the pandemic has obviously forced the the adoption of of having to adapt and drive through new ways of working. Let's be honest, you know, many organizations have, have, have been able to step up and, 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 and adapt and acted really swiftly to, to safeguard employees and to, to migrate to, to new ways of working that even the most extreme business continuity plans hadn't envisioned. I mean, who who the heck would envision? Who would have guessed that 2020, whatever, have ended up being like what it what it was? I, I think you're right. I mean, I'm a I'm a big believer. We won't go deep on the philosophy of technology, but I do believe very very strongly that we determine whether technology is good or bad. Yeah, it, it's when we become passive to owning that choice that we do we have the problems? That's when we have the issues. And what I mean by that is, I'm not going to go deep on this, but essentially we have the choice as individuals or society to really make technology work for us or to see this as a harbinger of doom. And it's it's neither. It's down to you making it work. And so I'll give you a good example of this. So a colleague of mine, because of COVID, he's had to, and you know, the children being from home, he's had to spend more time. And this is one example of many. But, you know, he has to spend time at home with his children in the way that he didn't before. He's got to look after them much more. So what he does is he chunks his day up and says, look, for this period, I'm available. For this period, maybe a block of two hours, three hours in the day, I'm not available. And then for this period, I'm available. And what he does is he stretches his work life out. So instead of working perhaps a nine till five, you might do a seven till seven. But he's taking these two hour chunks out of the day to be able to dedicate time to his family. Now, that is a different work environment. And 
would that have been a conversation he could have easily had beforehand? Now, you know, this is this is the, the dialogue has changed. So the dialogue is, you know, thankfully in in good companies, let us know what changes need to be supported to allow you to be able to work and have an effective home life balance. And, you know, when work is your home, we can shorten that to life. How do we yeah. allow you to be productive at work and have a functional efficient, caring life that's not going to see work destroy that. So that's going to be different for everybody. So my colleague for being able to take these two hour locks out, he can go look at one o'clock till three, I'm not available. You know, I will decline every meeting. And if the CEO, you know, in theory, the CEO goes, you're not going to be able to book his time. Why? Because he's prioritized that to his family. That's a real positive um, step for me. One other example, and this is, this is, I had part of this because when I was hired, it was only right at the final stage where I actually said, look, I want I'd, everything until the last sort of stage had been all remote. So it had been telephone calls, it had been Zoom interviews. And that was simply because, and so this was mid-2019, that was simply because the logistics of trying to get the right people together at the right location were proving difficult. The company was already distributed. It had a number of offices. It had a couple of key offices in the UK, but, but actually getting people to the right time together at the right time to be free at the same physical place was going to take too long. So what they did was they said, look, we want this to move quicker. So we're going to do it online. And it was only right at the end. And thankfully I got the offer and I said, look, the offer's great, but I'd still like to see the office. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We're not hiding anything. So, you know, I then go and, and visit the office, liked it, get a feel for the culture. But we've seen that go even further now, and I'll get on to the positive. So we've seen people, certainly my company and many other companies have hired people um, purely remotely for remote working, and they've joined the company. And they've never, ever physically met anyone from that company. And for some people, that's now lasted months. So they've been with the company months and they've never physically met anybody. Why? Because the company closed down the offices. And it, could it open them? Possibly. But, you know, it, it's actually much easier to leave them closed for the moment and, and you know, make the, the savings to be able to plow that back. But you've got people who are hired. Now, here's the other, here's the thing where that starts to become positive. The source of places you can look for those people are anywhere. If you don't need them to be within an hour or two of London, or you don't need them to be able to be within traveling distance of Warrington, then they can be anywhere. And they are. So what's happened is two benefit, two things. One, the company's been able to employ and make work hiring people that it wouldn't have been able to previously support. So people who've had, who, who can write at the start, go, look, um, I have a caring responsibility. This is what I can do. This is what I can't do. I can't be available. It's on Fridays. I can never be available before 10 o'clock, but I can work in the evenings. That's fine. So we've adapted. So what we've got is this massive opening up of opportunities. The other point is we've lost so we've lost the physical boundaries of where the people need to be. Now, at the moment, we're still seeing some time zone biases. So if you want it, the UK is largely hiring, you know, in the UK, but it doesn't need to. And once we evolve to the point of having a much more integrated and fluid 
um, benefit and taxation system. So it is all there. The trouble is it differs by country. But once we start to get a grip on having that standardised, at least in terms of the lever pulling in the HR department, you'll be able to hire anybody from anywhere. And this this is a huge um, positive for people because not only does it mean for organisations that you can find the best talent, which is exactly what you want, but you can find the best fit. Now, and that's that's a very different thing. So not only can, you could say, look, I want the smartest people, I want the best people, but actually widening the talent pool allows you to bring many other things into this. I want people with with uh, a certain set of values. And if you go to a big enough pool, you can encourage people to be open about those. And that works the other way too. So people looking for roles, hopefully will have a bigger pool of where they can look. So they're much more freer to be able to define who they are at the start of the interview. So rather than fit themselves to a job because they want to get hired, because there's a limited number of roles in the city 30 miles away that they normally commute to, they can be themselves. They can be honest and go, look, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I can work. And they can make themselves available to a huge number of organizations. That is an unbelievable benefit in terms of fit. So yes, there are a lot of downsides with working remotely and we can have, if we're not careful, there can be mental problems, mental challenges. There can be behavioral issues. Certainly you can have that there are downsides in terms of some disciplinary processes that it's much harder to deal with you know, problems. Um, and you can have performance issues and they can become more challenging. But there are a whole range of different balances that if we take it, we take a real step back and we look at this at a human level and we go, we're going to allow people to find a much better fit to where they want to work because there's a much bigger pool. They can be much more open about who they are. We have the tools. LinkedIn is great for this. There are others about which allow you to put on your personal characteristics to be found. Not only your experience, but they can find, um, search on many other criteria that we know we previously couldn't because the tools have had to adapt. That's a huge positive for me. You know, being able to have people want to be, to be honest about who they are, and be able to join a company, not just because the salary and the location, the job, but because the values, the culture, the belief systems. This is this is huge, huge benefits that I don't think we've really got our heads around yet. And maybe it happened in a very small number of companies, but I think we're seeing this much, much um, wider distributed. And for me, that's a that's a huge positive. To counter the many positives there has absolutely been downsides to what we have experienced in terms of isolation, social anxiety, mental health, inequality, and unfair access. The fear and anxiety about what could happen over you or your loved one's health, your financial situation or job, or loss of support services that you, rel- that you rely upon. Social distancing is a relatively new concept that the world has had to adapt to, And that can make people feel isolated and lonely and can ultimately increase stress and anxiety. Now, you're right, Roy. I think um, in terms of remote working, um, certainly there are very real downsides. And it's, it's really essential that we're open about those, we're honest. And I think it's, 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 it's a positive outcome for 
from a very a, a large number of negative reasons. So COVID has not been a positive, but we can take positives from this. For, for, so I think one of the things is recognising mental wellness, recognising stress, recognising um, overwork, recognising isolation are all key. And, and all they are positives. And, you know, going back to what I said before, they are positives. If you choose to act on them, you can make them a positive. So the fact that people are working remotely will in, will bring a lot of problems. It, it absolutely will. It, you know, it works better for some people than others. But the positives that can come out of these very real issues are in actively solving them. So not to pretend that they don't exist, to acknowledge that they do exist, to encourage an open dialogue, and actually to shift this, to be honest, to a conversation that's human. And I think the companies that do that are going to, they're, they're, they're going, they are going to become beacons of the future. You know, they're going to become the ones that are going to be, the ones that our people are going to be attracted to. So solving your problems, solving the problems that we as a humanity are going to face in terms of working and living through this, putting the effort into doing those is going to pay huge dividends, not in terms of reputation or brand value, but in terms of being the type of company that the vast majority of people that you would want to hire are going to want to work for you. And I think, you know, it, it's a brave thing to be able to do some of those things, but it's easy once you start to be very clear about what your values are as a company. And I think there's a real potential here for companies to, to want to become more human. You know, some of the companies you've mentioned were at the start were that they're big, large technology organizations. And I think the potential is we will see the innovation in working in some of the much smaller companies that are able to make those changes or recognize the importance of them because they can't not make them. They have to look after people. So I think when we start to see those problems acknowledged and actively solved, and, and I don't mean actively solved by tasking an exec and saying, solve this. I mean, having an open dialogue inside the company with the people who work for it. And here's the difference, their families, the people who they're uh, responsible for, you can come up with some great solutions and do this. You know, I don't think, and also I don't, remote working doesn't mean that you never meet. It just means that yeah. the slide has moved. One of the things that are certainly the division head, the SVP um, said, no, higher than that, actually, they, they, uh, I'm just trying to think of the, his title, but the, the head of product development said, he said, look, we are where we are, you know, clearly, it was a much longer um, speech and talk to everybody. It was an active, you know, engaging discussion. But the, the crux of this was, we are where we are. Um, we're going to do everything we can. So if you need some help, reach out. That's, that's a positive. That's not a negative thing. It, it doesn't go on your HR file. It's, that's their job now. The job of HR is to help you with these issues. But, you know, there was a cheer on the phone when they said, look, you know, what the future will hold, we don't know, but we do recognise that people are important. So as soon as we can get together, we're going to do that. Not to pull people back into the office, but to find somewhere that we can all get to. And that might be London, it might be Birmingham, it might be Barcelona. And the purpose of that will not be to sit down and do a load of workshops. It will be to rehumanise the group. We will put time aside because as an organisation, we recognise there will be a 
a time that we need to put aside in the calendars. And we'll give people plenty of notice so they can sort out care and holidays as they always would, but that you can reconnect and start to rebuild those human interactions. So this is where I think that companies who do actively look to not embrace the problems, but certainly not deny them. So say, look, these are here. What can we actively do? You know, and there are going to be limitations on resources, going to be limitations on time and people. But when we can actively look at these problems and go, how can we start to make this better? Not at a corporate level, but at a human level, knowing that if you get that right, the corporate box just gets ticked. So there, there are signs of that. But again, I, th- I think, you know, I'm also minded to look at this is the niche, but there are things that we can do. But I think, as we've said many times, it's about putting, putting human, putting people first and redefining that relationship to be about seeing people not as resources, but as assets that, is, that are, you know, essential um, cogs of the machine, not to be replaced, but unique cogs that fit together to get the optimum impact. The other thing is it's, it's starting to, it should start to purify the fundamental role of management, which should be around removing barriers to make great work happen. And by doing that, it's, it's about creating an environment where people can do their best work, that they feel a sense of belonging, they feel valued, and they're able to express themselves and create without fear. And I liked your idea there around the humanizing a team, humanizing an organization, and how you can do that. You do it through, you, you, you st- create these key moments throughout the course of a year and an event such as Barcelona, London, or whatever it is, a, a team event, I mean, where you bring everyone together and you inspire and you engage and you revitalize the team in those momentous kind of moments that are much more purposeful and meaningful. How is this going to affect creativity, innovation, and collaboration? If you look at global economic growth in 2020, it has declined and organizations are obviously being forced to make really tough decisions about how to really prioritize, what to invest in, how they should be managing cost. And therefore, the effects from an investment perspective on innovation are are unknown, um, really, at at a global level, because many organizations are having to pull back, they're anticipating further financial losses, um, and they're being significantly challenged in how to generate revenue and income. And also, organizations will view investment and innovation spending as, as, as critical for their plans for recovery and their long-term growth. So it's that conduit, or it's that balancing piece where they, they um, have to balance risk adversity and efficiency with longer-term innovation and growth and survival. I think, I think you're true. I think you're right. Um, how do you innovate in an environment that's forcing you to cut costs? That's that's always been a challenge. You know, um, if you want to innovate, you know, you can take the gold-plated option of, you know, you can go and say, I want to, you know, hire, you know, Frog or IDEO or yeah. Accenture. I want them to innovate and I need you to redesign my business. Well, for many organisations, that's just not going to be an option. Their, their pockets are not going to be deep enough. But that doesn't mean to say you can't innovate. I think what you need to do is you need to go back to the core of what you want to do and shift your model of trust. So 
if you want to, you know, none of those organizations are going to be hireable. I'm sure an account manager will contact you and say, no, no, Gary's absolutely wrong. We don't cost anything like that. But none of those organizations are seriously going to be hireable in terms of getting real outputs for less than what, a quarter of a million dollars. Well, if you want to deliver that innovation, just get creative with not just what you want to achieve, but how you want to achieve it. You know, if, if we were saying, what can you do? Well, take, take what we've got today. Take the low-tech approach. Start to empower people and drive that innovation. So the change that yeah. you make is not to do it in the way that you did before. What you have is the opportunity to rethink the way you do it, but maybe shift the resources, shift the allocation of resources to a much lower level than you would have done. If you want, instead of having um, service design organization redesign, you know, do a six-month piece of work to redesign your service experience. Take it low tech. Have people, you know, you're going to need some facilitation. But look at how you can empower people much lower in the organization to be able to, to, to play into this. this. These are the experts in your organization. Start to think, how could you have them create? Well, and this is where we start to get into the what is possible and how do things change. So instead of you know, hiring a large agency, go and find a really creative professional individual, go and find some freelancers, go and find the skills out there. And, you know, it's going to take a bit of time to find the right person, but go out there, find the person who is an excellent fit for what you want to achieve. But instead of hiring, you know, the frog or the idea, and they are both fantastic companies. But instead of hiring those, go and find a, a fantastic designer who's really publishing, who's making waves in what you want to achieve and bring them on board because the yeah. cost of doing that is a fraction of working with this at a scale solution. Then the other thing is start to think about how you can empower network of effects. How, how can you yeah. fund a network of innovation? How can you start to make the connections and allow the connections to be made between a small fab, um, you know, a fabricating company, a small design company, maybe a individual freelancing product manager. So instead of hiring these big organizations, what you start to do is you start to look around and go, there's a lot of creative people. Let me try and spend some time finding the best people, giving them the resources. You know, we talk about production values, you know, and and, it, and I'm amazed at how, you know, real, you know, FTSE 100, you know, S&P 500 companies will do calls and the calls clearly made on a rubbish webcam. Why have you not thought it important to send the person who's doing a broadcast that's going to be on TV, a hundred quid Logitech webcam? Why have you not sent them, you know, for 500 quid? A thousand pounds, you could have a broadcast quality camera. It's yeah. this is broadcast quality, but you're going to be able to do HD and um, and uh, 4K. Why are we not getting those resources down to people to want to create and innovate? Provide the tools. Don't force them to go and hunt around for software. Start to make those licenses available. If they're not working out, you know, ask them. If you're not using it, let us know so we don't need to pay the subscriptions. But I think there's the big point about innovation here is to start to make, is to start to rethink innovation by reducing the barriers, evolving your culture to welcome it. And that, you know, we all know that means welcoming failure, but then putting some skin in the game, not at a macro level, but at a micro level around the resources to help that. So 
give some, you know, give some people, give people the freedom to take some time out, give them the kit budget to be able to buy the kit to at least um, mock up the concept, you know, encourage those connections with third parties. Look for small local organizations. They don't need to be local, but it might be that what you want to achieve is going to require some physical interaction. So find those organizations. And this is where, again, it becomes a positive because there are going to be many more of them out there. The changes that we see in terms of employment patterns, we're only seeing the start of this. And this is, it's a very painful point in the short term and hopefully a positive one in the long term. We're going to see a lot of um, evolutions in working practices. You know, organizations are downscaling. People are going to be, that's an opportunity if we get it right to innovate at a much smaller level at an individual level. So start to embrace that as an organization. Be proud of the fact that you're hiring uh, freelancers and individuals. That's a massive asset. So I think it is possible, but it needs us to be innovate in the way that we innovate. Uh, I don't know, Roy, I mean, you've done a lot of work on this. If you were given a, asked to do some of the things that you've done with, you know, 30% of the budget, does that fill you with dread or do you go, no, no, I can, I can, I can make that work. It's not a, maybe not a 10 out of 10, but I can do a great eight out of 10 for that a fraction of the budget. I mean, what are your yeah. thoughts? I I would say almost all of the innovative, creative, inventive um, initiatives that I've been involved in has involved next to nothing in terms of, of budget. You know, a, a great idea is a great idea. Um, and you can make things happen in very creative ways. Where budget has been handy is when it's came to help and scale in the execution of the idea and making the innovation happen. And what I found is when organizations have just thrown resource and money into something without fully critically thinking something through end to end, um, or, you know, throwing money into something and they think, well, if I go and acquire this, if I go and subscribe to that, if I go and source this, um, it's going to make me, and I deploy it, it's going to make me an innovative company. Absolutely not. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think when it comes to building um, creative and innovative teams, um, it doesn't, having massive budgets um, is not a critical success factor to coming up with um, game changing, to coming up with big gold ideas. So, um and I also think as well, when you look back at the history of time in terms of companies that have been the phoenix that's risen from the ashes and in times of um, significant challenge or recessions and the likes. I mean, Microsoft, for example, was, was, start, was born out of a recession. 2008, many of the social media platform companies like, like Facebook um, and the likes were born out of that. So I think with adversity comes disruptive innovation. And like I say, going back to the point, it's you, you don't throw money into, um, history tells us as well, you don't throw money into something if you don't have novel ideas um, and great talent behind that to make that happen. The, the other thing is, yeah, sorry, go, go, go on, no, the, the, the other thing, Gary, is, you know, um, thinking parallelly but connecting a lot of the themes that you were speaking about there um, and crystallizing that around talent nurture and then dovetailing that into helping shape 
what the future of work looks like. All jobs that can be automated or done better by artificial intelligence and robots will become the norm. But where does that leave the role for humans? Is creative excellence the bare necessity for human survival and unique differentiation in the workplace? Industrialization transformed the world from agricultural work predominantly done by people to mechanized production. People were replaced by assembly lines to improve operating efficiency and increase production speed in a predictable, scalable and cost-effective way. The industrializing of a business at scale is about mitigating uncertainty, ambiguity and judgment into a fine-tuned formula of simple building blocks that anyone can do. Starbucks and McDonald's and much of the fast food, retail, corporate media and entertainment companies are based on these industrialized principles of mass produced and mass consumed business models and products where one size fundamentally fits all. A cookie cutter model that starts with a service design by defining every process and then mapping every process to roles. These types of business systems are designed for automation, for repetitive robotic work, not for people. The bottom line, all these tasks can be automated and performed by AI and robots. And because it is based on predictability, speed and efficiency, machines can do it better than humans. To provide a specific example of process excellence that drives customer experience, I was involved in an engagement at Starbucks where we conducted observational research with Starbucks employees and customers within their stores. Starbucks are very focused on the speed it takes an employee and to mitigate as much of the process steps as possible to get the coffee to the customer as quickly as possible because less steps means improvement on the bottom line. It's more cost-effective and profitable. The way that Starbucks map out their service design and in the context of the customer experience journey, they have a deep, deep knowledge and insight to what constitutes a baseline experience, what constitutes a poached experience, and what constitutes an enriched experience for their customers, and what are the levers to make that happen. It's a good example of a company that's found the equilibrium between scalable service design and customer experience. No, I think I think you you're right. Um, I think you know if I compare a couple of coffee shops, and um, I, I think when people talk about automation, there's a couple of ways you can see it, and they're really simple question that I always would ask somebody is what do you want to automate? Do you want to automate the person out of the experience or do you want to increase or maximize the efficiency of the person doing the experience? So if if you see the experiences as um, ultimately a human experience, then the role of automation should be to support that. If you if you want to make the experience, if the experience essentially isn't human centric, then the, the role should be to get rid of it. So a couple of quick examples of this is um, in a, in a, if I'm building a car for the most part, I want that to be automated. I want robots to do it. Yeah. 
If I'm buying a car, I don't want it to be automated. If I'm talking to somebody about something which is human, it has a human emotion, I don't want that to be automated. You know, I much prefer, you know, so let's, let's take two examples. Take Starbucks. I much prefer going into a Starbucks, speaking to a, a, a barista, having a conversation, and I want the conversation. Even if I choose not to have it, I want the offer of that conversation. Rather than going into a... Um, a, a drive-through petrol station, you know, a fuel station, putting, pressing the, pressing the button on a screen and seeing my drink, you know, dribble out under the cup that I've put in. You know, ultimately the two outcomes are the same, but the experiences are a world of difference. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I'm not a coffee person. I'm, I'm more of a hot chocolate guy. And, and for me, hot chocolate is largely hot chocolate. And it, as long as you stir it and stuff. But, you know, could I tell the difference? I, I probably couldn't. But do I care about the experience? Absolutely. I, I do not want a functional hot chocolate. You know, I want the human experience of going in. And I think if when we look at organizations and environments and businesses facing automation, what they should be doing is not is not looking to, you know, fight the automation. What they should be looking at is saying how to embrace the automation without that, without, with, you know, sorry, how do we embrace the automation as a way to improve the human customer experience or the human experience, the human interaction. Now, how could that work? Well, if I want AI on the, if I want to put AI into Starbucks, I want that coffee machine to be perfect. I want it to be predictive. So it's never breaking. I don't want them to run out of cream as they did the other day, yeah. you know, a couple of days I'd waited. I thought, and on this day, I'm not going to have a, a you know big hot chocolate with a load of cream on every day. I'm going to wait a couple of days and I go in, I'm waiting a couple of days and I've just done a walk up a hill. So I'm really ready for this hot chocolate. And they go, I'm sorry, we don't have any cream. Like massive fail. Yeah. And of course it, it it's not important, but it's a failed experience. Now, you know, when you talk about AI, AI should have been in there going, let's, let's ensure we never ever run out. We don't want to overload. We don't want cream to go off, but Let's never, ever run out of cream. Why? Because Gary might want cream when he's hot chocolate after going for a walk in the snow. And that's where AI should be coming in as a, as a, as a way to make that experience predictable, high quality. But it should be invisible to me. Um, you know, I, I could, another couple of examples of two coffee shops. So the coffee, and I'm not going to name the, the, the brands here. One I go into, it, the, the people are, are very... Um, friendly and they're great and they, they, uh, the drink's great. But when I go to sit down, the chairs have got rips on and they're just tatty and the, the floor's not been swept. Another one, equally good drink, equally friendly. The, the um, you know, the, uh, there's no rips in the chairs. There's no, there's no dirt on the floor. And the point about this is, to, to focus on the whole experience. And, and this matters. You know, one of the things I always think of with shops in and retail establishments or anywhere I'm buying services from is if you came to my house and you'd found some furniture ripped, you might do. I'd like to think that I was going to realise that that was an issue that I would want to fix in time. I'd, I'd hope it wasn't. 
Um, I'd hope that you could come to the house and it wouldn't be dirty. But if it was, I'd hope that the next time there was at least some cleaning in place that that, that was going to be cleaned up. So you you allow some bumps in the process. But what you do is you focus on having that consistency. And what I think of what I think of this is how important is the customer? If I go in and your seat is ripped, how important am I to you as a customer if I go in two weeks later and that's not fixed? That wasn't important to you. You can you can serve the coffee, you can serve the drinks, but that's not important to you. I mean, it's a bit of a divergent one, but when we look at experience, it has to be the whole experience because these little things can cause you the bump. I think there was always the danger that, and and this is perhaps why we come probably right back to the where we started of what's important in the organisation, and it's in having all of it work as a system. Having everything work cohesively, that's why the collaboration is critical because you can't have a great coffee making process if the floors are not done, if the cream isn't ordered, it all starts to fall apart. So this is why that when you start to look at innovation, you have to involve the whole organization. You can't do it in isolation. But I think there's a lot of experiences, you know, I mean, trying to make this useful for people, if if you know, I work for a company that does software automation. If you want to, you know, you go, Gary, well, tell us about the future. Okay. Um, tell us what your software could do. Tell us why we should buy it. Okay. Don't start with the software. Start with this. How do you make a better customer experience of what you do? Whatever your the heart of what your business is at a human level, look at how you can make that more efficient and then plug the automation into that don't start with the automation because there's a risk you get the automation right and you really mess up the experience. You know, there's a lot of companies that have had a very bumpy road that have done that. So I don't, I don't see automation as something to be feared. I think the problem is that a lot of people and certainly a lot of organizations, they, they miss what it should be used for. It should be used to improve the human experience. That's it. That's it. You know, the best quote, I mean, we, you mentioned about AI. The best quote I ha- I've ever heard about understanding AI is AI, as soon as it's useful, ceases to be AI. It's just whatever the useful thing it is. So you look at Amazon, AI powers the recommendations engine. It's not AI that people are seeing. People are seeing a great recommendations yeah. engine. But why does that matter? Because it's helping me as a human. Yes, you're helping sell more books or CDs. And buy CDs, you're helping sell more assets, helping sell more goods. But ultimately, what you're doing is you're trying to help me with the experience. It's help, it's helping me improve a better experience. Use AI to to find fraudulent reviews so I can believe what I read, not to write them to 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 keep the quality high. And I think when we see when we see AI used and we go, how does this help the user? If you don't know the answer to that, then AI isn't the right solution. It's somewhere else. When applied properly, AI has had significant impact within the workplace in terms of how it improves business and also how it enables employee productivity. And it will continue to have a significant impact on the workplace and how work gets done. In a way, just as the automobile did when it replaced horses, but the net effect of that for humanity was that it significantly improved life and society in so many different ways. The future is unwritten and the jobs of the future have still to be defined 
But I do think it's a very exciting prospect for humanity and the more abundance of creative-oriented jobs that should exist because robots and AI has taken over more of the mundane repetitive tasks, freeing up humans to be able to do more critical thinking in creative types of professions. Is this the death of the monolithic organisation as we know it? And will this constitute a greater rise in the gig economy over corporate jobs? In the future, might there be a stronger entrepreneurial culture where people can make a living from doing what they are naturally good at and want to do than what they are made to be good at? Could this fuel an all-encompassing gig economy where people have multiple gigs simultaneously for a variety of employers at the same time? Driving the need to be a true expert in your craft. That's a, that's a massive one. So I'm going to start with um, what I hope and then work this back. So I hope it does. So if, you know, you know, the quote about only a fool tries to predict the future. Well, the problem is that we've both been in that field for a long time and have to be <laughs> continually asked to do that. But I think... What are we going to see this year? You know, if we look at a logical progression of what we've seen and the outcomes, we've seen certainly in a lot of Europe, we've seen a lot of jobs um, were furloughed, but we've seen a, a, a rise in unemployment. So what's happened is the investment in the economy by the government has helped take off the, 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 the worst edge of what was possible, of what was like to happen with unemployment. That's been less so in the US, as a lot of the um, investments have, have gone to they've not been at the, the ground level they've been made to organizations directly have not who have not always passed those on so you know and the what was the outcome of this we've seen um you know um financial distress for a lot of organizations certainly a lot of smaller organizations a lot of individuals in the us and across the world so that that is not going to disappear the the acceleration that covid brought um you know, I think it was Scott Galloway who's he's he's reused a quote that goes back much further in saying that what COVID brought us was decades of innovation in months. I'm yeah. horribly paraphrasing essentially what he said. But what one of the things that COVID has done for businesses is is accelerate the change. So if you were looking at the clock spinning round of you know, in an accelerated time, what happened during COVID was they started noising around it one heck of a pace. And that's what's happened with businesses. So what they've done is they've seen the trends that the changes that were going to happen anyway, accelerated. Now, where will that lead to? It's going to lead to a lot of organisations, you know, um, reinventing themselves. And that will mean in the short term, some organizations will hire, but it also means a lot of organizations are going to lose people as well. Now, those people who are leaving have a choice, and, and, and I'm not oversimplifying this, but you have a choice between, do I want to go into finding a job again, or do I want to take more control of my future and you know work in a much more freelance, independent manner? I really hope that we see two things. One, organizations, sorry, people, reach out and start to go down that entrepreneurial lifestyle and it's not for everybody and it's bloody hard we've both done it and it's and it's and it's tough but it is ultimately rewarding but 
We also need the change in terms of organizations and critically government to make the changes to embrace those as well. So certainly in a lot of economies, there are tax benefits and tax breaks for big organizations that just don't are not accessible to smaller organizations and individuals. And that needs to change. Um, there's complexity in terms of legislation, which it's very difficult as a small, small organization to get past. So I think we are going to see a, we are going to see a lot of organizations, a lot of people start organizations, start to take more control. But if this is to be successful, we need to see governments and businesses evolve that they work as well. And a good example of this is if you, I mean, you, you'll know this because you've you dealt with big IT engagements. If you want to, if you're an organization looking for services and you put out a contract that request. So the in the UK and our a request for information or request for proposal, a formal tender document that starts to say you have to have a turnover turnover of five million. You've just wiped out the ability of ninety nine percent of the people who could apply to that to apply because you can only deal with organisations. So if you put those those clauses in your contracts, you are denying any small organisation to be able to apply. You're denying any freelancer. And therefore, you're denying yourself a huge amount of innovation. So if we want to see these changes, we're going to need to see, you know, people are going to need to put themselves out there, but also organizations are going to need to be able to, are going to need to make the changes to be able to allow these individuals and these small organizations to apply. I remember when I had a small consulting company years ago, you know, we would look, we would look and sometimes be invited for work and they might say, you you would have to have a turnover of X. Okay, that's that's tricky because we're not going to do that. And you need to have um, the ability to provide um, a certain number of people. Now that we could do. So we could have had a great discussion because what we could have done, and we looked into this, was we could have had several um, individuals and small two, three-man companies work together and collaborate to solve the um to solve the need of the big organization. But if it writes that organization, it writes that contract in a way that, to be honest, the there was only one of 20 organizations in the in the country that could have done that. You're just defeating the whole point of this. Now, here was the irony of this. It was the organization I was working at and doing most of my work for. And as, as an independent freelancer, gig economy person, um, it was a small company, so I'm providing services to the company um, along with several other people who are. The organization is happy with what's being done, but it wants more formal structure. So what it does is it writes a contract and says that, well, we need this to be done more formally. But it writes the contract in, in a way that has these stipulations and requirements and stops any of the people doing the job forming an organization to actually supply it which is ridiculous. So um, I'm not going to be careful not to name the company. So what happened was it goes through with the tender. The majority of the individual contractors leave. It goes to a large company. And what happens? It, the cost of providing the service goes right up because 
you know, if you want a contract to be effective, you're going to need to know every condition. And this was a services business. So what happened was there were a load of things that it didn't ask for, and then it got hit with change controls and additional costs. So anyone in IT services will have seen those many times. So, and house builders as well. So any anything that requires you to have a detail of everything you're going to do, if you're not comprehensive, you're, you're going to get caught. So what the end result was, it ended up paying a lot more for a worse service that was far more inflexible. The opposite of what it wanted. And why did this happen? Because whilst it wanted the consistency of a single um, accountable um, entity, entity to deal with, the way it did that precluded a whole range of options how to be formulated to do that. So I think this comes back to, if we want to see where the future will go, it needs the parallel push and pull to happen as well. And if one happens without the other, it's not going to be sustainable. If we see lots of people go into forming one-man businesses, but we don't see evolution in terms of the buying or the procurement or the taxation or the innovation or the legislation, then a majority of those are not going to be successful. Um, likewise, if we see um, the changes in organizations wanting to buy, but we don't see that support in in terms of how people can find, get finance, that's going to restrict it as well. So it needs the whole system. And I think what's going to happen is, is for me, a lot of this is going to become down to actually political leadership. It's going to come down to creating the environment where we start to normalize what is going to happen. If we you know, if I look at the news and it's like we start to talk about jobs and the only concept when we talk about jobs, we hear a politician talk about jobs. When we hear them talk about jobs and when they talk about jobs, they mean being employed by a large organisation. If that's the only definition that they're focusing on, then we're going to find it a really difficult you know, few years. If we start to say we start to talk about jobs and employment and working and economies and flexible um, ways of delivering services. Then we start to create the environment. And I think this is why that, that political leadership is going to be key to this. So, you know, should, or should people um, form their own businesses? You know, I think look very carefully at what you can do. And if you, the other thing is if we go back to where we started, if you, if you are finding that there are going to be some real challenges, you know, there's nothing to stop you having that conversation with organisations and pointing out some of the things that you need to have changed in terms of, you know, contracts or restrictions to be able to make that work. And, you know, to bring this full circle about individuals being productive, if you're finding that your organisation, you don't think it's particularly innovative, have that conversation. There's nothing to stop you. One of the good things about COVID is it's a great time to have a conversation of, have you thought of what about if we did this? This is a perfect time to start to have those conversations. So how do, you know, let's broaden this out. How do you start to rebuild and reframe your job? Get creative, think about what you can do and then start to have that conversation. You know, the old adage of the worst thing they can say is no, clearly there's 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 worse than that you can but you can have the conversation in a way that's only positive you know is this a conversation that you're prepared to have no okay they don't want to have it 
you can make your choices about where you go next. You can carry on doing it. You can start up a, um, a side gig. You can decide to start applying for other roles. You can put start on a, a company. You can start to collaborate, build your profile, whole range of options. But I think one of the positives, if, if we would take a positive in a really tough situation is now is the time for anybody in any organization, if you have some ideas to start to surface those in a respectful way, using the channels that are there. But don't be shy about having that conversation because I think you maybe find that the organization is much more willing to listen to those. It may not listen at the first time, but certainly persistence will pay. I wonder if the net effect of kind of what's happened, Gary, is that it, it will reduce the need for mass urbanization and therefore people will migrate to where they actually want to live in contrast. Up until the Industrial Revolution, you know, the majority of people lived in, in rural um, areas, lived on farms, for example, where they lived off the land. And then when the Industrial Revolution came along, it, it created urban centers as a magnet for factory production and employment, where there was an enormous influx of a diversity of people from all over that flocked um, to live and work there. And then the post-industrial revolution, which is obviously the world in which we live in today, has led to the emergence of digital societies, especially across America, Europe, and Japan, for the most part. And although the Industrial Revolution was driven by technology to enable mass production that supported a monolithic labor-intensive population, in contrast, the post-industrial revolution has led to the services industry producing more of the wealth than the industrial and manufacturing industries. So companies like Google, Microsoft, Facebook have overtaken the likes of General Motors, Ford, General Electric, based on technology, based on digital technology, information and services as the core assets that they produce. Um, and the largest and influential hub of creativity for those sectors now are Silicon Valley is, is an example in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, where we're at now kind of going forward, I wonder if there's going to be um, more people migrating out to, to rural areas where central hubs and urban spaces become significantly less as a result of kind of what's happened? Um, I, I think of everything we've talked about, that's probably the, the, the one prediction that I would throw the most money behind. Yeah. Um, so I think, and it's not a negative or a positive. It, it's an evolution. So, you know, what you talked about, you talked about the, the industrial revolution of, of you know, very summarizing you know, a couple of hundred years, you know, and what, what we are, and this is, this is, but this is why it's critical. So, you know, pretty, you know, your podcast, you've talked about Manchester, you've talked about, you know, a lot of the urban um, industrial revolution in the UK and across Europe and America and how it happened. I think, I think we are absolutely at the point of, we talked about, what COVID has done is, first of all, it smashed down a lot of um, barriers that were there in terms of what was possible. So I couldn't work from home um, more than this, and I can't do that, and I can't work collaboratively, and I can't do this. Well, we now know that a load of those are not true. So take the counter of that. We now know that for a lot of people, working remotely is possible in some form and to, to some level of um, 
effect. Now that needs them to, to make some changes, to make some adaptations in their life, in some cases to maximize it. Now we've talked about technology, but also I know of people who are engineers who've got home workshops and what they've done is they've just built their home workshop. They can actually do a lot of the work that they can do in terms of finishing at home rather than in the, the shop. So there have been some evolutions, but I think what it's also shown, what it's also done is brought a big mirror to a lot of people to go, okay, if I'm not shackled, for want of a better word, by this lifestyle, if I don't need, I'm, I'm paying a lot of money for my city flat so I can be near to my um, banking IT job. Well, if we start to break these relationships down, so I my banking job can be done anywhere, um, why do I need to live in a city flat? Because for the price of this city apartment, city flat, I can live in a, uh, a nice house in the country. And now that's not for everybody, but it means that, and this is the positive change for this. It means that people are able to reevaluate what's important in their life and make work fit around that, not have their options in life limited by what they want to do. Now, clearly, if you love the theatre, you love eating out, it's not, you know, living in a, a rural area is not going to be for you. You know, you might find one pub and it's the same regulars all the time. If that's yeah. not what you want, then the rural life isn't for you. But I think it's, I think we absolutely are going to see, and this is, this is going to, it's not going to ripple across. It's going to put a thunderbolt across a whole range of industries. So that realization that rebalancing of life that refocus on who am i what do i want what is the sort of life that i want and what are the options that i have for earning an income i think those discussions are going to reverberate through housing not just housing location but also housing design ultimately because most houses are awful in terms of being flexible for the people living them they're not um, I think this is going to have repercussions in terms of transport. I think this is going to have repercussions in terms of um, city um, um, urban architecture, both for small towns, for miles, for mega miles, and for urban, you know, um, um, cityscapes. So I think I think this is the biggest factor that's going to drive the change. That for many people, they have reevaluated what's important in their life, the options that they have for delivering that and then the flexibility that they can operate within that. And that's what's going to deliver a huge number of changes. And the changes, this is where for me, the changes, this is where the biggest changes will come from because they're going to be um, much more um, sustained. So if you think about that, you, you can start to work some of these changes through. So if you think that, well, I was in, I was in a, um, a city centre apartment. I've got a small family. Um, I want to move out. I want to move to an urban area. Okay, so I need to go somewhere that has more space. I need to go to somewhere that is perhaps connected that I can actually um, drive drive to the ability to get in. So I may not want to drive into the city. I might want to get a train. So it means that we need to think about, you know, urban networks. We need to think about parking. Well, if I'm going to be traveling much more, not walking around the city, I might need a car, I might need a different car. I'm I'm now prioritizing some personal pursuits. So I want something that can carry a canoe because that's now important. Whereas previously I might have hired one or thought that that was not practical. You know, where I shop, I have a choice of, instead of just going to the local 
supermarket or the local uh, mega mart in the in the city i can have a choice of whether i go to a local village to shop a small town uh a, a, you know a retail a drive to retail area or a big mall so which do i go to and why so the design and those is going to need to change because if you're going to need to attract people you're going to need to evolve what you do the car that you have I, the school it, this will ripple. This will be the biggest change. So when we talk about the industrial revolution, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, I think that it's COVID that will drive this. It, it's the changes that come from the reflection of COVID together with automation, together with the changing demand for jobs that go together with the changing shift to a lot of things going to automated online. This is the changes. This is the actual catalyst of what will be the change. And that means that if that's right, then most of the big changes that we've seen are only just starting or haven't started. They're, all, they're, you know, they're, they're to be made, but they're not to be feared. They're to be embraced because if we get it right, it means that people are happier in a place, living, doing what they want to do, working in a way that they want to work. That's, that's got to be a good thing, right? Don't focus on the technology shift. That's what yeah. mistake people make when they make prediction to get it wrong. Focus on the human need. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate, and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening. Uh-huh.